Hello and welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. And today we're extremely pleased to welcome back Dr. Ikon Erdemir, who's the senior director of the Turkey program at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is a former member of the Turkish parliament from 2011 to 2015. And he served in the EU-Turkey Joint Parliamentary Committee and other EU committees. He is a founding member of the International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief and a drafter of and signatory to the Oslo Charter for Freedom of Religion or Belief. That's from 2014. Dr. Erdemir has edited seven books, including Social Dynamics of Global Terrorism, Risk and Prevention Policies, and he is the author, co-author of the 2016 book, Antagonistic Tolerance, Competitive Sharing of Religious Sites and Spaces. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, uh, The National Interest, Turkish Policy Quarterly, and many other publications. After completing his BA in International Relations at Bilkent University, Ankara, Icon received an MA in Middle Eastern Studies and a PhD in Anthropology and Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University. He's also worked as a research associate at the University of Oxford's Center on Migration Policy and Society. He first spoke to the Westminster Institute back in 2018 on how Erdogan consolidates power, the weaponization of Turkish media. Today, he's going to address us on the subject of Erdogan's folly, conspiracies bring Turkey to the brink of bankruptcy. Welcome back. Thank you, Bob, for that warm welcome. It's a great pleasure to join uh, the Westminster Institute again. Uh, today, uh, as the title says, uh, we will uh, take a deep dive uh, into Erdogan's policy folly and the bankruptcy uh, that we will look into is not only a political bankruptcy, but also an economic bankruptcy that is unfolding in Turkey. And so uh, to begin with, uh, my take home message will be that the conspiratorial mindset of an Islamist leader uh, has succeeded in bankrupting one of the leading emerging market economies, namely Turkey, and condemned its more than 85 million citizens to poverty and financial hardship in the years, if not decades to come. So that, that is basically the, the bottom line here. And you know, for those of you who have been watching political Islam in action, this of course is not a surprising turn of events because political Islam uh, has a consistent track record uh, of basically pillaging and looting the polities that it takes over, bringing them to the brink of bankruptcy. And in Turkey, it took less than 20 years for Erdogan to quote unquote succeed at this feat. Now let's take a look at the, the, the set of conspiracies that have driven Erdogan's economic policy. And 
uh, that brought out uh, this financial meltdown. Uh, those of you who watch uh, financial press, you know, the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, will constantly see a reference to a term uh, called unorthodox economic policy. So there will be a lot of references to Erdogan's unorthodox economic policy. What this means is that um, against the widespread idea, not only within economics as a science, but also as economic practice, financial practice, uh, that to fight inflation, you have to raise interest rates. Erdogan takes the exact opposite view. So his unorthodox economic political view is that high interest rates lead to high inflation. Hence, he claims if he lowers policy rates, interest rates, this will also lower inflation. Now let's take a look at the United States. The Federal Reserve has signaled that to reach its inflation targeting, which is 2% in the United States, it will hike interests multiple times during 2022. And since inflation exceeded 6% last year, you know, 4% over America's inflation targeting, um, it is of no surprise to any economic actor in the United States that Fed will increase interest rates. And this is, as expected, uh, likely to bring the inflation down. Now, in the Turkish case, the Turkish central bank has an inflation targeting of 5%. But when we take a look at the 2021 inflation, it was almost 40%. And you can see that the inflation targeting is way off target. It doesn't work. And what really led to this was that while the Federal Reserve was preparing to hike rates, Erdogan forced the Turkish Central Bank to bring down the policy rate from 19% to 14% within the last four months of 2021. Now, this of course is akin to committing suicide. Guess what happened? There was a dramatic devaluation in the Turkish lira. There was a dollarization of bank accounts as Turkish consumers rushed to the banks to convert their lira accounts into US dollar accounts or euro accounts. And um, this, despite Erdogan's efforts at creative accounting through Turkstat, you know, Turkey's statistical institute, um, consumer price inflation, the official consumer price inflation is at 40%, but most independent observers claim that the actual consumer inflation is probably double that. And the Turkish lira lost almost half of its value just within 2021, uh, but this is part of an ongoing devaluation since 2018. And uh, your average Turkish worker has experienced a, a dramatic slashing of his or her earnings, especially in US dollar terms, when minimum wage fell below $300 a month for the first time during 2021. 
Now, you, you might ask, you know, uh, how about other emerging market economies? Meaning, is Erdogan unique or is he a, an outlier when it comes to such an unorthodox economic policy? And the answer is a solid yes, because when we, we see a systematic decoupling of Turkey's economy from other emerging markets, especially in 2021, uh, the world's emerging markets watched very closely what was happening in the United States. They saw the hike uh, in inflation. Uh, they read the signals from the Federal Reserve closely, and they realized that in 2022, there will be a, a haircut when it comes to basically the, 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 the liquidity available in the world, and hence to the emerging markets. How did they prepare? Um, almost all of them hiked interest rates, their policy rates, through their central banks. Uh, they tried to add to their reserves uh, and basically braced for potential devaluation. And they knew that hiking policy rates was a good bet both against inflation and also against devaluation, which they know then also translates into additional inflation. There is like a pass-through effect. Now, let's come to Turkey and see what Erdogan did, you know, how he decoupled Turkey from all these other emerging market economies. First of all, he admits to selling $165 billion of the Turkish Central Bank's reserves in 2019 and 2020 alone. So this is basically uh, 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 a, a total sell-off of all of Turkey's foreign currency assets, uh, you know, hard-earned foreign currency assets over the decades. Second, um, I've mentioned that there is some creative accounting going on in Turkey. So this could either include Turkstat's, uh, let's say, creative counting practices, or it could also mean various window dressing attempts by Erdogan. So if you ask him today, he would argue that by the end of 2021, Turkey still had $8.6 billion uh, in the Turkish Central Bank's foreign currency reserves. But this excludes the window dressing through international swap deals Erdogan signed over the last few years with China, Qatar, and South Korea. Add to that another window dressing attempt within Turkey, whereby the Turkish Central Bank buys US dollars from local banks and through a swap deal provides them with Turkish liras. Hence, both the international swap deals and the local swap deals through magic increase the Turkish Central Bank's foreign currency reserves on paper, but not in reality. And according to Goldman Sachs, uh, and this is from a Financial Times piece this week, Turkey's uh, net international reserves, foreign currency reserves, excluding these swap deals, are now negative $66 billion. Now that is an unprecedented depletion of Turkey's foreign currency reserves. 
and not only depletion, but also they are now in the red. The reserves are now in the red and uh, it'll take possibly generations to put all of this back in place. Now, I'm sure as you're listening to this horror story, uh, which inevitably uh, will uh, not be contained within Turkey and will gradually spill over to other emerging markets and then possibly uh, to the developed economies, uh, you're asking the question, why? You know, what would drive a politician to such a self-destructive path? And now going back to the title, uh, there are a number of peculiar um, ideas that constitute Erdogan's worldview, Erdogan's ideology that has brought about, uh, that have brought about this disaster in the making. Uh, first of all, uh, one uh, term best that can be best used to understand Erdogan's uh, worldview is the so-called interest rate lobby. Uh, since Turkey's uh, nationwide Gezi Park protests in 2013 against the Erdogan government, we have seen then Prime Minister Erdogan and today's President Erdogan uh, repeatedly refer to a so-called interest rate lobby that targets Turkey uh, and condemns it to paying high interest rates. And anyone who has followed Erdogan closely and anyone who has followed the Turkish parlance closely uh, would know what this term alludes to, what it refers to. This is a euphemism Erdogan uses for the global Jewry. So it is an anti-Semitic comment. So this is all a part of Erdogan's you know, struggle since his teenage days in Turkey's Islamist movements uh, as what he sees as a crusade against Jews. And hence, Erdogan uh, has always uh, approached interest rates not as yet another economic tool the central banks use to set monetary policy, but uh, as an evil that needs to be fought at all costs. So this is pretty much at the root of Erdogan's unorthodox economic policy, meaning lowering interest rates regardless of what. But at the same time, what exacerbates this problem is a strong dose of anti-Westernism. Now, Erdogan uh, is so staunchly anti-Western, uh, a meaning not only against Western culture and civilization, but also what he sees as the global institutions of the Western-led liberal world order, that he's also staunchly anti-IMF and World Bank. You know, he has repeatedly uh, voiced his criticism of the IMF and said that he would not turn to the IMF for a bailout. Now, um, anyone who knows Turkish history knows that Turkey has had multiple economic crises in its history and often turned to the IMF 
for significant bailout packages uh, and structural reforms, which then put Turkey back on track. But at this point, although Turkey is entitled to such a, a major capital injection from the IMF, Erdogan is not willing to turn to the IMF. Now, of course, there is more than just ideology that prevents him from turning to the IMF, in his view, turning to the West for help. And that also has to do with the strings that come with any IMF bailout package. Now, to begin with, let's talk about the size of such a bailout package. Now, when Argentina needed one, it was over $50 billion. And many observers argue that Turkey at this point needs 100 to $150 billion of a bailout package, which would make it the biggest ever bailout package in the history of the IMF. Now, as you can imagine, no institution, no international financial institution would be willing to extend a, a big loan without significant strings attached. And as one can imagine, those strings here would be, first of all, guarantees for good governance, which means transparency, accountability, the rule of law, due process, private property rights, and so on and so forth. You know, anti-corruption and anti-money laundering measures. Now, anyone who knows Erdogan would also know that these are big red flags. You know, these are red lines that Erdogan will not cross. He, because he will see any of these as impositions, as giving up authority, giving up power from his one-man rule regime. Hence, uh, again, Erdogan's ideological fixations uh, also prevent him from an off-ramp when it comes to Turkey's financial meltdown. But then there is a non-ideological dynamic at work as well. And that is personal interest or crony interest. Because Erdogan uh, works very closely uh, as the Turkish citizens call them, the gang of five. So this is uh, Turkey's top five construction tycoons in Erdogan's inner circle. And according to uh, OECD statistics, these five companies are in the top 10 global construction companies that have received the largest public tenders in the world. Now, you can imagine that there are construction companies in the world much larger than Erdogan's crony construction companies. So how is it that these five companies managed to win all the public tenders to the extent that their record is much better than all the global giants? As you can imagine, this is a typical case of graft. That is almost every single public tender in Turkey of you know, uh, mid or large size tender uh, end up going to these uh, crony bosses. And these crony bosses in exchange, not only provide kickbacks to Erdogan, not only uh, provide uh, Erdogan's uh, other clients some spoils, 
but also sustain Erdogan's uh, political machine and fund Erdogan's media empire, Erdogan's propaganda machine. And uh, as you can imagine, these construction bosses who are also in, involved in residential and commercial building activity require low interest rates, low mortgage rates to stay afloat and to sustain their businesses. So ultimately, Erdogan is hooked on low interest rates because his cronies depend on low interest rates and Turkey's construction boom, much criticized unsustainable construction boom is also dependent on low interest rates. So regardless of the ill effects on the Turkish economy and citizens at large, Erdogan cannot really give up his fixation on lowering Turkey's policy rates. Now, if you turn to Erdogan and ask him why he is doing this, of course, he will not confess to any of this. Instead, especially during the second half of 2021, he had to come up with a justification, a pretext uh, to offer to the people. So now his claim is that he's doing all this to make Turkey more competitive. He is arguing that uh, Turkish Lira's devaluation would lower in dollar terms the average wage in Turkey, the average salary in Turkey, and hence would turn Turkey into the country of cheap labor. He argues this would, this would boost investment, this would boost exports, and this would attract foreign capital. Now, unfortunately, the reality does not necessarily fit Erdogan's model. At this point, yes, Erdogan has succeeded in sinking Turkey's minimum wages uh, to the lowest uh, in the region, um, in the Balkans, uh, in, and even some would argue now below those of China's minimum wages. But then the question is, what is the effect? First of all, let me point out one thing. Uh, Turkey's high tech exports comprise only 3% of its total exports. As you can imagine, if your goal is to be a haven for cheap labor, that often ex excludes your chance of climbing the high value added, high tech export ladder. Uh, and Turkey is actually, when you take a look at Turkey's exports, they are condemned, you know, more than half of Turkey's exports are either in the lowest tech category or low to mid tech category, which means Turkey has a significant problem uh, in developing high-tech industries and exporting high-tech goods. And lowering the minimum wage will actually not make any difference. On the contrary, we have seen an exodus of a, a brain drain uh, of highly skilled workers from Turkey which it will pose a further obstacle in Turkey building a high-tech industry and uh, increasing its high-tech exports. Now, 
Turkey's brain drain. Uh, by the way, you might be wondering why such a dramatic brain drain in 2021. And you know, when uh, professors, you know, monthly wages and medical doctors' monthly wages are below a thousand dollars, people basically seek uh, their futures elsewhere. Uh, so we have seen a systematic exodus of medical doctors, uh, academics, uh, engineers, uh, software programmers from the country. And to make matters worse, this is accompanied by a capital flight, a capital flight of two different sorts. One is the ongoing Western capital flight from Turkish equities and bonds. So by 2020, uh, this has hit rock bottom to such an extent that Western capital in the Turkish stock market and in Turkish sovereign bonds uh, hit an all-time low. And there was at one point even some debate whether to remove you know, the Turkish equities index from the emerging markets category and relegate it, downgrade it to the frontier markets category, which is really um, disastrous in terms of Turkey's global economic image. If you think that just you know, two decades ago, Turkey was one of the most attractive emerging markets. And the second capital flight is actually domestic capital flight. You know, Turkish citizens for all sorts of reasons are taking their assets abroad, taking their companies abroad, uh, taking their bank accounts abroad or investing in cryptocurrencies. So this has a twofold rationale. On the one hand, they know that Turkish assets will continue to lose value. So they escape Turkish lira, uh, Turkish real estate, Turkish stocks. And at the same time, they're afraid of Erdogan's long arm. Erdogan has already confiscated over $10 billion worth of businesses since Turkey's abortive coup. He has frozen bank accounts, taken over private property, uh, and um, in a country where there is no rule of law or due process, people fear that Erdogan can even extend his long arm to people's US dollar and Euro deposits in banks. Hence, uh, yesterday uh, in the Wall Street Journal, there was a report about record high levels of lira to cryptocurrency transactions in December 2021. And in fact, the last quarter of 2021. Now, this is not just a fear of devaluation, but this is also a fear of losing deposits in Turkey-based banks. So people, in an attempt to secure their savings from Erdogan's confiscation, turn to crypto assets, assuming that cryptocurrencies can present a kind of a, a safer uh, medium. Now, when you bring all these together, uh, you, you, you can pretty much feel the financial panic in Turkey. And the end result is diametrically opposite to what Erdogan is claiming about 
attracting capital, boosting exports, boosting Turkish economy. On the contrary, what we have seen lately is, first of all, a, a sudden halt to trade, a sudden halt to investments, uh, because the Turkish lira in 2021, according to some studies, was as volatile as cryptocurrencies, for example, such as the Bitcoin. So this is unheard of that a, a, a sovereign currency, a fiat currency, is as volatile as a crypto asset. And in such a volatile setting, as you can imagine, no entrepreneur would like to invest long-term and no foreign investor would like to invest in a large scale greenfield investment uh, from scratch to create employment. Hence, Erdogan's self-defeating uh, you know, steps it simply exacerbate Turkey's economic crisis. Now, uh, I've already mentioned some of the public, the Turkish public's response to this. First of all, the dollarization of the economy, you know, people turn their lira assets to dollar assets or crypto assets, or they purchase gold and keep it at home, which is a very traditional Turkish thing. They don't trust the banks. Uh, so they basically uh, keep potentially over $200 billion worth of gold uh, at home or in their safes. Uh, and uh, ultimately, as I've argued, they also vote with their feet. That is, they leave the country altogether. Now, this, of course, is a, is a, is a path to disaster uh, for country. And ultimately, this could not end much different than what we have been witnessing in Lebanon or earlier in Argentina. So it is really a sad state of affairs. Now, the question is, is there a path forward? Uh, on, on the one hand, Turkey is a very resilient economy. It, it has, you know, the, the, the Turkish public, the Turkish businesses have been used to significant ups and downs. They're used to weathering similar crises. So people argue that resilience will work toward Turkey's favor. But then if and only if there is a path back to orthodox economic policy, if there is a path back to providing trust to the markets. Now, one my, my quick take home answer here is, as long as Erdogan is in power, there is no path forward. That is, uh, until he's voted out, uh, it is extremely difficult for Erdogan to rebuild trust in markets, uh, to return to orthodox economic policy, or even worse, to restore confidence in Turkey's economic institutions. Just to give you an example, uh, Erdogan has changed the director, the governor of Turkey's central bank, uh, you know, four times over the last several years. And increasingly, the appointments became more and more nepotistic. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, individuals who have no central bank experience whatsoever ended up at the helm of the central bank. Second, he has also reshuffled uh, the monetary policy committee of the central bank and politicized the entire institution, undermining its uh, administrative and financial autonomy. Hence, Erdogan also needs to rebuild trust 
in Turkey's regulatory agencies and the central bank before the markets respond positively. But as we all know, that is mission impossible, meaning Erdogan will never uh, give up uh, his power and authority over the Turkish central bank. So again, uh, based on these, I would argue that uh, Turkey's uh, path forward would require, uh, hopefully with the 2023 presidential and parliamentary elections, a, a peaceful transition of power to Turkey's big tent umbrella opposition bloc. Now, if uh, Turkey then returns to a, an enhanced parliamentary system, uh, to pluralism, uh, to the rule of law, uh, and uh, to due process, then there might be a glimmer of hope ahead because that could then begin a restoration process, a restoration process that would first need to rebuild Turkey's autonomous regulatory agencies and central bank, then end the era of creative accounting at Turkstat and reinstitutionalize meritocracy at the civil service and making sure that Turkey's uh, bureaucrats in charge of the economy and finances uh, are individuals with the proper training and experience instead of simply being Erdogan's cronies. And if and when these institutional measures are combined, let's say with a, a significant IMF bailout package with a significant cash injection, I think Turkey will be then on a slow path to recovery. And once that recovery path becomes evident, uh, brain drain could turn into brain gain as uh, Turkish expats begin to return to Turkey, not only with their know-how and connections, but also with their capital. And they could uh, play a major role in boosting uh, Turkey's economy. And that would hopefully be accompanied by yet another wave of Western capital inflows to Turkish equities and bonds. And most importantly, greenfield investments that would create new industries and uh, produce uh, new uh, opportunities for employment, a much needed employment given Turkey has the OECD's highest uh, rate of need, meaning youth not in education, employment, or training, which of course is really a formula for disaster. Now, I mentioned mostly economic uh, and political, domestic political measures, but let me end uh, by also uh, underlying that this also has to be accompanied by a major reversal of Turkey's foreign policy, adventurism, belligerence, and irredentism. Because Erdogan's policies, which are basically geared not to maximize Turkey's national interests, but uh, his political Islamist interests, his Muslim Brotherhood allies' interests around the globe, will need to be replaced by Turkey's conventional Western-oriented, uh, you know, rules-based uh, foreign policy. Now, such a policy 
would then entail a return to trade diplomacy instead of adventurism. And that would have a significant boost on Turkey's exports. Because since the Arab Spring, Erdogan's uh, Islamist adventurism you know, in Syria, uh, in Libya, and elsewhere uh, have basically pushed Turkish entrepreneurs and exporters out of many of the Middle Eastern markets, including Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates. So there has been either a growing skepticism or there was a growing skepticism toward Turkey uh, or Turkish exporters and Turkish goods. And Erdogan has actually, within 2021, realized his big mistake and uh, has been trying hard uh, to make amends with Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel. Uh, but as you can imagine, uh, it will take time uh, and possibly another Turkish government before trust can be built and Turkey can once again uh, access these markets, uh, some of which have witnessed almost over 90% decline uh, in uh, import of Turkish goods. So as you can see, uh, from economic policy to domestic policy, to foreign policy, uh, Erdogan's political Islam has been one big chain of mistakes, self-serving mistakes, both politically and economically, self-serving mistakes that come at the expense of the Turkish Republic, at the expense of Turkey's 85 million citizens, and that often also comes at the expense of the stability and prosperity of Turkey's immediate region, as well as other emerging markets. Uh, so it is my hope uh, that uh, in 2023, uh, we will see a repeat of the 2019 municipal elections in Turkey, uh, through which Turkey's opposition parties joined forces to defeat Erdogan's candidates. And we will see a, a, a slow, long path toward uh, you know, sound economic, domestic, uh, and foreign policy in Turkey. And this will also provide Turkish citizens uh, the hope they need uh, to keep up uh, with this long, hard path back to you know, recovery and prosperity once again. Icon, thank you very much. It, um... Despite the, the monetary mayhem that the cuts in the interest rates have caused, three since uh, September, Erdogan said he's determined to continue cutting interest rates through to the elections next year. So he must think that there's a political constituency inside Turkey um, that, that's big enough to to, to cater to in this way. I mean, you mentioned these uh, construction magnates who benefit from these artificially low interest rates, but what a, the, the public at large doesn't seem to be responding well because recent polls in Turkey show dramatic declines in the, in the support for Erdogan. Now the polls indeed indicate that Erdogan, the support for Erdogan is at an all time low. 
and also the support for Erdogan's coalition partners, namely the far-right Nationalist Action Party, are also uh, at an all-time low. So combined, they no longer have the necessary majority to re-elect Erdogan or to gain parliamentary majority. But at the same time, uh, I would never underestimate the power of Erdogan's propaganda machine uh, to present this financial meltdown as success to Erdogan's core loyalist support base. So when Erdogan uh, argues that low interest rates uh, are a result of uh, Islamic teachings, there will be a small but tight-knit core uh, support base that will stay him until the very end, even if they have to face personally extreme hardships. Uh, you know, uh, this is not only propagated by the media empire, pro-Erdogan media empire, uh, but also, uh, you know, built into the Islamist way of thinking uh, that this is basically a fight, a good fight worth fighting, uh, even at great personal costs. And actually, uh, you know, Iran observers can possibly detect similar motivations and sentiments among the regime's most loyal elements. Now, in general, Iranian citizens uh, are extremely skeptical, you know, of the clerical regime's economic mismanagement and corruption, and they frequently take to streets, but still the regime has significant hardline loyalists who will buy into and reproduce this rhetoric. The same is also true for Erdogan, that yes, uh, he will continue to you know, bleed some votes to the opposition, but at the same time, he's doing his best to maintain his core support base. So what some could argue to be miraculous is that such a politician who has destroyed an emerging market economy still manages to get over 30% support in the polls. Because if we compare today's Turkey with Turkey of 2001, you know, right before Erdogan's rise to power, a similar economic collapse wiped out the entire center-right and center-left parties, the, the three-party coalition in Turkey, and they were not able to elect a single representative to the Turkish parliament. So in 2001, the electorate's wrath was complete. It was, uh, it, it really pushed all the mainstream parties out of parliament and created a vacuum which Erdogan exploited to push his Islamist agenda forward. But today, interestingly, Erdogan is not suffering from a similar meltdown. Yes, he has lost significant percentages, you know, up to 20% of his support. But I think still the question that begs an answer is, why would still 30% of the Turkish public see any hope in a leader who has consistently failed to deliver? Maybe the answer uh, icon is that the full effects of these disastrous economic policies are, are yet to be felt. I 
and following the financial news about Turkey included an interview with the head of a pharmaceutical company that's been in business for many years, saying that what uh, Erdogan doesn't seem to recognize is that the export industries in Turkey, including the pharmaceutical companies, require um, imports uh, constituting a, some, something like 70% of Turkish exports require imports of, of parts that are made into something by Turkish industry. And therefore, this monetary disaster uh, is uh, raising their costs to the point that they're, they're going to be driven out of business. So the full effects of that, the unemployment that will occur, it certainly seems to me it's going to hurt, obviously, the, al the already poorest parts of Turkish society from which Erdogan draws a lot of his support, if I understand that correctly. And even for Islamists, don't they at a certain point devote their pocketbooks when the full effects of this mismanagement become evident to them and life becomes impossible? Bread lines form and that kind of thing? Now, actually, the bread lines have formed for miles and miles now, and it has been widely reported in the Western media. But I think there is also the sense that clientelism is an important force. That is, uh, a lot of the individuals in Erdogan's loyal support base know that they have received uh, significant spoils over the years. Uh, they have positions in the civil service, in the economy, that they owe not to their qualifications or skills or achievements, but to Erdogan's patronage. And they fear that if Erdogan is gone, they might lose those advantages, those privileges, those spoils as well. And hence that could lead to some stickiness in support for Erdogan. But now going back to your earlier comment, which is also extremely important, um, the the rampant devaluation of the Turkish lira uh, poses significant risks, which we will also begin to see this year. Now, first of all, we have to remember that Turkey imports over 90%, you know, over 95% of its hydrocarbons. And this is all in dollar terms, US dollar terms. Second, as you said, um, Turkey has a robust export-oriented economy, but there is a significant imported intermediary goods component of almost all Turkish exports. And third, in a country where uh, the, the banking sector is dollarized, almost all of Turkey's corporations uh, take loans in foreign currencies either from international banks or from domestic banks. And as you can imagine, the devaluation of the Turkish lira creates significant risks and significant problems for corporations that have taken foreign currency loans. Now, for the export-oriented companies, they might weather the storm because their revenues are in part in foreign currency. But if your revenue stream is mainly from the domestic economy, that is in liras, 
then you have you are in a bind. On the one hand, you have outstanding foreign currency loans that you need to pay back, but your revenue stream in lira is getting smaller in dollar terms each month. So your ability to service these loans, you know, just pay the interest rate on these loans, let alone pay back these loans, uh, become impossible. Hence, uh, in 2022, uh, we might see some of what I have earlier called uh, in one of my articles, uh, Turkey's zombie companies, you know, companies which are solvent on paper, but actually are already non-performing, uh, go bankrupt. Uh, because some of these companies have been kept alive on paper uh, by the Erdogan government, which has pressured, first of all, public lenders, Turkey's state-owned banks, and then some private lenders to keep them afloat and not to mark them as non-performing loans, non-performing companies. Sounds uh, like China. Yes, it's, it's quite similar to China, but of course the scale is different and the, the, the government's capacity for bailout is different. But ultimately, when you put all these factors together, with increased energy costs, with increased raw material costs, and with increased intermediary goods costs, uh, then again, this is a recipe for disaster. Well, if he's true, if Erdogan is true to his word, and he keeps lowering interest rates uh, through to the election in 2023, uh, the, the, certainly he's going to pay a political price if those elections are free. I mean, won't it be as bad as 19 years ago when those parties were destroyed by the economic problems then? Now, here there are two caveats. One is, although Erdogan continues to lower interest rates, and although he toes the line that he will continue to lower interest rates, he also comes up with a number of financial shenanigans to practically increase interest rates elsewhere or have, to have that effect. For example, Turkey's 10-year sovereign bonds uh, in the markets uh, have been climbing when it comes to interest rates. Or Erdogan has come up in late December with a new scheme uh, telling consumers, convert your US dollars to Turkish liras in the banks, and at the end of the year, you can collect your Turkish lira interest rate. And if there is a devaluation of the Turkish lira, I will make up for the difference from the treasury's funds. Now, uh, on paper, uh, this is, one would argue, another form of interest. You simply don't call it interest, but it is another way of uh, basically uh, paying for money in deposits. Now, with one difference, if Erdogan uh, increase interest rates, uh, then the official interest rate is your liability. But if you are giving guarantees against devaluation, it is basically an open-ended guarantee. Meaning at this point, for example, Turkish lira uh, has had years of losing 50% of its 
value. Now, if this scenario is repeated this year, by the end of the year, Erdogan will have pledged to pay 50% interest from the government purses for these guaranteed Turkish lira accounts. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, you know, after Erdogan announced this policy, the lira rallied for a, a short period of time until reality uh, reasserted itself and it went down. One risk, I wonder how many uh, Turks are responding to that offer of converting their hard currency to lira in their bank accounts. I read somewhere that 60% of the money in all Turkish bank accounts are in foreign currency. So it would be interesting to know how many were lured into the lira by this because isn't one danger the what um, Erdogan would recognize as the inflation figure, you know, as you said, or actually Erdogan admitted the, a, a short time ago that the inflation rate in Turkey was 36%. You just mentioned many people think it's much higher. I There was an amusing comment by uh, a political opposition leader, Ali Babakan, that Turkstat is the Institute for Adjusting Numbers. <laughs> and it's like the, the foreign currency exchange rate. If you try to, if you go to Turkey and change dollars into lira, you'll, you'll really take a beating because the official rate is, uh, you'll, you know, you'll lose a lot of the value because you won't get the real rate of exchange. So wouldn't the Turkish depositors be leery of what Erdogan would recognize as the inflation rate as against what the real inflation rate is? Do you see what I mean? Yes, <clears throat> now, that, there are two different instruments. Uh, when it comes to inflation indexed bonds, that is indeed the case that Turkish investors feel they're cheated by the artificially low rates of inflation announced, measured by Turkstat. Plus, Turkey's civil servants and pensioners also feel cheated because the raises they get are also inflation adjusted, which means their purchasing power has been eroding year after year as Erdogan is basically lying about the inflation. Now, with this new product, which is not tied to inflation, but pegged to the US dollar, mm. you don't necessarily have the inflation risk, but you have another form of risk. First of all, uh, I think at one point, Erdogan realized that this could put enormous strain on the budget, meaning he is literally undertaking an obligation of unknown size right, an open-ended obligation. So uh, he tried to backtrack by saying the difference between the Turkish interest rates and the dollar, you know, uh, value might be paid through bonds instead of liras. So, you know, this was perceived by investors as, oh, maybe they will not be able to honor these you know, additional payments. 
And then there's another problem. Some investors rightfully see this as creeping uh, capital controls and a ban on foreign currency accounts, meaning ultimately Erdogan could decide that he is no longer able to honor all these obligations. And he could say, Turkey returns to an earlier era of you know, no foreign currency accounts. Uh, and he could simply say, I am converting all foreign currency accounts into Turkish lira at today's official rate, which I announced to be as such and such. Now that would effectively be an immediate wealth tax that people would, based on that exchange rate, lose significant purchasing power. Uh, and that is also another fear they have. And there is already a sign toward Erdogan eyeing these dollars that the consumers and investors have. And that is Erdogan introduced a measure recently which forces all Turkish exporters to turn a quarter of their export revenues to the central bank to receive its Turkish lira equivalent. So basically, Turkish exporters are now forced to sell their US dollars, hard earned US dollars. And as you just mentioned yourself, there are some exporters who uh, depend to a large extent, up to 70% on intermediary goods and raw materials they import. Now, you can imagine what happens. You know, they will export, but then they will only receive 75% of their export proceeds in US dollars. So what we have been witnessing is they are now turning to the, the markets to once again try to convert the Turkish lira they received from the central bank back into US dollars, which is of course leading to further transaction costs and which is also putting additional strain uh, on the Turkish lira uh, in the markets. Uh, but ultimately, uh, what the Wall Street Journal warned uh, in its latest piece on Turkey is that if and when uh, the day of reckoning comes and Turkish depositors turn to Turkish banks, private and public banks, and start withdrawing their US dollars and euros, fearing that uh, they are no longer safe and thereby trigger a run on banks, these banks will then need to turn to the central bank and ask for their dollars back. Because right now, almost all of the dollar deposits in private and public banks are in the central bank's coffers on paper in exchange for lira swap deals. And when these banks turn to the central bank for these dollar assets, to be frank, they are no longer there. Because I mentioned that according to Goldman Sachs, the central bank reserves are at negative $66 billion. Hence, um, that could really be a, a big shock for the average Turkish depositor. Uh, and also probably would be a, 
like a, 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 a variable, a development that is forcing Erdogan to convert all those accounts overnight to Turkish lira accounts, because ultimately you can print as much Turkish lira as you want, as long as you accept hyperinflation. But, and ultimately you can basically allow any depositor to withdraw their deposits in liras, but you can't do the same with US dollars since you can't print dollars or euros. So that's ultimately the disaster path here. This is beginning to sound more and more like the, uh, <clears throat> the latter years of, of the Weimar Republic. Yeah. Uh, do you, let me ask you a political question, Icon. Do you have enough confidence in Turkish political institutions to think that the election in 2023 can be carried out in a fair way. Part behind this question is the worry that the level of corruption around Erdogan, and that certainly has directly touched Erdogan's family, uh, there's speculation that when that gets to a certain level, they can't afford to leave power. Similar things have been said about Putin in Russia uh, because of what they'll be vulnerable to if they give up power of what's going to happen to them and to the fortunes that they have amassed. So they'll find a way by hook or crook to keep that power. I think, you know, this is a very much open-ended process. Now, what we know for certain is that there will not be fair elections, but the question is whether there will be free elections or at least semi-free elections. Now, if 2019 municipal elections are any guide, Erdogan is prone to foul play. When, he lost, when his candidate lost Istanbul, metropolitan mayoral elections, he annulled the election through extra legal ways. And only when he lost again with a much greater margin, he conceded defeat. Now, that is both good news and bad news. Bad news because it shows Erdogan is willing to, you know, uh, foul play. But at the same time, uh, I, I think that the key question here is, is a municipal election a good enough analogy to the general elections. Because as you said, with the municipal elections, you only lose the municipal office. But with the presidential and parliamentary office, you basically lose everything. You and your family members and your inner circle of cronies can uh, literally lose all their assets, uh, can be brought before Turkish courts and can end up in prison. So. For Erdogan, the ultimate choice could be, do I concede defeat and face all the consequences or do I concede defeat and end up in Qatar as an exile, in exile, or do I steal the elections once again and do it better this time around? So um, again, I really don't have an answer to that. Now, the optimists argue that Turkey has had uh, at least 72 years of uh, relatively free and fair multi-party elections and 150 years of parliamentary experience. So they argue that 
this is very much in the Turkish DNA that people are expecting to go to the polls and elect their next leaders. But Erdogan has eroded significant uh, amount of Turkey's institutions, rule of law, and democratic um, culture that he might get away with it. In fact, in the question, you already gave me a hint as to a one disastrous path forward, and that is you mentioned the Weimar Republic. And Erdogan, I think, has a strong incentive, first of all, to um, demonize, vilify ethnic and religious minorities at home to divert the voters' attention away from the economic collapse. And also he has a strong incentive for irredentist war abroad to again, to create a rally around the flag effect. Uh, and in fact, possibly, you know, enter elections uh, during a state of emergency or even postpone elections uh, by using war as pretext. Hence, I think at this point, we are entering terra incognito of Turkish political life and past experience can guide us, but can no longer really inform us as to what to expect. Because I fear that Erdogan has been preparing for this day to completely revise the rules of the game as he has significantly revised the rules of the game. I know some of what I'm arguing now sounds unbelievable, incomprehensible to the skeptics. They would argue, no, he can't really get away with that much. But I would like to ask them this question. If two decades ago, I told you that Erdogan would one day have executive, judicial, and legislative powers and can overnight issue decrees uh, turning his will into law without any parliamentary oversight, you probably wouldn't have believed me. You would have said, no, that's impossible. Turkey will never have that much centralization of power in one individual, in one office. But this is where Turkey is as of 2022. So who knows where Erdogan might take Turkey to in 2023? So that's, that's where my, let's say, pessimism comes from. But at the same time, the optimist in me says, Turkey has a very resilient opposition bloc. It has succeeded in 2019. It is poised to succeed again in 2023. And the Turkish people have really had enough. Uh, and, um, and if I, again, need to end with a policy suggestion here, I would argue the difference between Erdogan's prolonged one-man rule and Turkey's return to democracy and the rule of law could rest actually not just with the Turkish voters, but also with the European Union and the United States. Because if the transatlantic alliance today 
starts signaling to Erdogan and his inner circle that no foul play will be accepted. And any foul play will be met with the harshest pushback, such as global Magnitsky sanctions for the inner circle of cronies and kleptocrats. You can be sure that the Erdogan regime's elite will think twice before stealing, their, stealing Turkey's elections, because never underestimate the extent to which kleptocrats need the West, because that's where their overseas assets are parked. That's where their real estate has been purchased. That's where their kids are studying. And that's where they would like to take refuge once things collapse back at home. So if the European Union and the United States signals to the Erdogan regime's kleptocrats, you know, the, to the plutocrats, to the oligarchs, that there will be serious consequences, you know, material consequences for complicity in stealing elections, uh, in uh, refusing to concede defeat, uh, then I think we might be a step closer to peaceful democratic transition. Well, let me just ask a, a question sort of from the past, uh, but brought up to date is the Turkish military is no longer a factor. Is that fair to say that Erdogan has neutered the military or at least brought it under his control through the purge of siege, senior officers and so forth that they're, the Turkish military under that wouldn't under any condition as it did in past years, um, step in when things get politically out of control? Now, I, I would argue that Erdogan uh, has been doing his best to bring the, the military under his full control. And uh, we have seen the Turkish military serve Erdogan's cause of political Islam in Northern Syria uh, and in Libya. Uh, for example, again, two decades ago, if I told anyone that one day we would see Turkish officers fighting alongside jihadists, you know, mercenaries, Syrian mercenaries in northern Syria, in Libya, in Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, this would have, this would have sounded like science fiction. It, it would be unthinkable. But today, that's where the Turkish military is. So I would argue if the Turkish military will be of any influence in Turkish politics, it would be to strengthen Erdogan's hand. For example, if Erdogan needs war, if he needs adventurism abroad, uh, the Turkish military will probably play along uh, we have already seen this in northern Syria. Every time Erdogan had a referendum or an election, we have seen a cross-border operation, you know, three back-to-back cross-border operations into northern Syria. And they had significant rally around the flag effort. So if Turkey has a fourth cross-border operation into Syria, or there is uh, yet another cross-border operation into northern Iraq, or if there is further adventurism in Nagorno-Karabakh or in Eastern Mediterranean or in Libya, uh, then I would argue that that's Erdogan using the military to create a rally around the flag effect uh, and have some advantage in the elections. 
But ultimately, I would argue uh, that it is a good thing that the Turkish military has been uh, defanged to some extent, because although the mainstream thinking has always been that the Turkish military has been a staunch supporter of Turkey's secularism, I think the reality on the ground has been quite different. The military has had uh, very uh, complicated impacts uh, and impeded the development of Turkey's economy. And in ways, in more than one, uh, contributed to the ascent of Islamists in Turkey uh, during the Cold War willingly, uh, which they believed uh, Islamists would offer an antidote against uh, you know, left-wing movements in Turkey. And later on, during their anti-Islamist years, inevitably by pursuing uh, an unreasonably hardline policies that not only targeted Islamists, but that also targeted a lot of the pious Sunni Muslims in Turkey, and hence gave Erdogan uh, a strong support base. So I think in the long run, it is in the best interest of Turkey's democracy, secularism, minority rights, and religious freedoms that the Turkish military is under full and complete civilian control, and they no longer have a role to play in domestic politics. Can I close with the question, Icon, on how any of this may impact Turkey's relationship to NATO as a NATO member itself? And again, that's a very important question. And one of the reasons why I have been calling on the transatlantic alliance uh, to be involved proactively beginning today is that the elections uh, and Turkey's next government and Turkey's economic trajectory will have a significant impact on NATO, not just on the alliance's southeast flank, you know, uh, where NATO uh, basically attempts to thwart um, threats from Russia and Iran, but also uh, against you know, the creeping Chinese influence in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. And it is one thing to have a, a Turkey in good standing in NATO, cooperating actively with other NATO allies in pushing back, and it is another thing to have Erdogan's Turkey playing a spoiler role, playing Putin's Trojan horse role within NATO. And for the, again, the skeptics in the audience, let me just list what Erdogan did last year when NATO uh, wanted to issue a strong condemnation of Russian hackers for hacking into US and other European systems. It was the Erdogan government that watered down the statement. When NATO wanted to issue a strong protest against Russian intel's sabotage targeting Czech ammunition depots, it was again Erdogan's Turkey that derailed it. When NATO wanted punitive action and rhetoric against Belarus for forcing down a Ryanair jet flying from Greece to Lithuania, it was again the Erdogan government that blocked some of those punitive actions and watered down some of that rhetoric. So 
Although some people refuse to see this dynamic, Erdogan does play a significant spoiler role to the delight of Putin within NATO. And if that is to be reversed, if Turkey is to return to the significant role it used to play during the Cold War uh, in NATO's southeast flank, I think Turkey also needs to return to democracy and rule of law at home and also some economic sanity. Because ultimately, um, as we have seen with the Weimar Republic, abject poverty and the scapegoating accompanying it, uh, you know, promoted by some of the, the worst brokers of hate, uh, are a path to disaster in dismantling institutions, uh, dismantling uh, cordial relations at home and dismantling cordial relations abroad. And such a Turkey uh, would, instead of being an asset for NATO, would become a major liability, again, to the delight of Russia, China, and Iran. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, and I'd like to thank uh, Ikon Erdemir from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies for joining us today to discuss Erdogan's folly, conspiracies bring Turkey to the brink of bankruptcy. I invite our audience to go to the Westminster Institute website and see uh, Icon's other videos with us, one discussing the transformation of Hagia Sophia back into a mosque, and the other one, how Erdogan consolidates power, the weaponization of Turkish media, as well as other video presentations on subjects such as Ukraine, Russia, China, and so forth. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Robert Riley.